our conversions have been referred to as extreme conversions. And um, I just simply respond to that by saying, well, extreme conversions reveal an extreme God. Extreme love, compassion, mercy, and extreme power. We as uh, Christians sometimes forget about the power. We're going to talk about that uh, some today in the presentation. And I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. <clears throat> uh, Acts chapter 16, the context of this chapter is Paul and Silas. They had been traveling. You know, a part of the, the work to turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had been in this town of Philippi for a couple of weeks. They got themselves into trouble uh, when uh, they delivered this woman from her demonic possession. And under that uh, demonic possession, she was a fortune teller and bringing her masters great fortune. <laughs> Uh, but they complained to the magistrates, the city magistrates, had Paul and Silas brought in. Uh, and we read, if you'll pick up with me in verse 23, what happened to Paul and Silas. When they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. So I think you can get the picture here. They were being tortured. I, uh, with our ministry team from Arkansas, Louisiana Conference years ago, we, uh, we went to Israel on a tour. And uh, one of the places we visited was one of these types of prisons with the inner dungeon. Uh, the, the inner prison has no windows. Uh, if there are no torches or whatever, it's just dark as a cave. And I noticed these big round iron rings around the wall in that inner prison. We asked the tour guide what was with the rings. And he said, that's where prisoners would be chained, you know, like this with their backs to the wall. Uh, very uncomfortable position to be chained like that through the night. And I just picture Paul and Silas, their feet are in the stocks. Their backs are raw flesh from being beaten. He said, with many stripes. And I just picture them being chained that way uh, to the wall in a torturous position. It goes on to say, and we're going to go through the story a little bit here, that at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. It's interesting. I, every time I read this story, I see, you know, I, I pay attention to the detail. I think it's just kind of humorous, a little sideline. Paul is the one who gave us the fruits of the Spirit, right? The last of which is what? Temperance. And here we're reading he's up at midnight, <laughs> singing and praying. But then it makes sense, really. They probably could not sleep because of the pain, the suffering that they were enduring. And uh, we read that the, the prisoners heard them. That doesn't mean they overheard. It means... The singing and praying of Paul and Silas caught their attention. And uh, I can imagine in that dungeon or in that prison that there were others that were being tortured or maybe have been beaten. And there may have been a lot of crying out in pain, moaning and groaning and cursing and swearing. But then there's a sound of music. Can you imagine it kind of? Put, uh, had an effect, I would imagine, on the prisoners. This is a detail that's in there for a reason. <clears throat> and we read on that suddenly there was this great earthquake. A great earthquake. Um, in today's language, that would be an 8.0 or greater. I don't know what it means biblically by a great earthquake, but it does tell us the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately, all the doors were opened. And notice everyone's bands were loosed. Now, what kind of an earthquake would do that, even a great one? Wouldn't their feet still be fast in the stocks? Wouldn't they still be chained, even if the doors were open and the prison was broken? Wouldn't they still be chained? You would think. And so I can't help 
but allow my sanctified imagination to go to work. And I just imagine that there must have been some angels somehow involved in this scenario because everyone's bands were loose. The earthquake would not have done that. And the details are here for a reason. Verse 27, the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword. The little boy up here was, he was looking for a sword fight, wasn't he, this morning? Uh, but uh, here, where, I don't know where he is, but here's a sword, right? He drew out his sword and he would have killed himself supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Well, that seems rather extreme, doesn't it? But in that culture, um, in the political environment, that was the punishment. If, if a prisoner escaped on your watch, it doesn't matter what the circumstances, the one in charge was facing a certain public humiliating execution. And I just imagine that he thought, well, I'll save myself the public humiliation and execute myself. And why would that be? All these prisoners, he thought, had been fled. I can relate to this because I've been in jail a couple of times myself. I've never been in prison ministry, so go figure. Anyway, and I, I remember the second time when I was allowed no, it was the first time. <laughs> the judge sent me back to the, to the jailhouse after a hearing, and I was going to have to be there for two weeks and wait for a trial. Uh, you have to know right up front, I was innocent. In both of these cases, I was innocent. So anyway, I was going to have to face jail time for two weeks before the trial. And I got back to the jail, and the, and the jailer there said, so what are you in for? And I declared my innocence and told him what it was all about. He said, well, uh, there are, my jail is full and there are more that are going to be coming in. Um, he said, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll let you go. Just make sure you're back in two weeks or we'll both be in trouble. He trusted me. I remember when the door was opened, I should have just left, but I didn't. Have any of you ever opened mouth and inserted foot? You know, I just thought, hmm. Okay, he's letting me out. Sir, you know, my car is on the other side of town. Could someone give me a ride over to get my car? <laughs> he looked at me and he said, sir, the door is open. Do you want to go or shall I pick somebody else? I got it. And I was history. I was out of there. And I had to hunt for the car on foot. Uh, but I found it, made my way back eight hours to Southern California, uh, away from the area. But, you know, when I read this story... You know, if you've ever been in jail, these little details make, you know, they stand out. He supposed, the jailer supposed, that the prisoners had been fled because they, all the bands had been loosed. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm. Why? For we are all here. I find that fascinating. How could he say, and how was it true? We are all here. And the curious thing about it to me is that there must have been divine intervention to loose everybody. But those same angels, if it was angels involved, they wouldn't be sitting on the prisoners and holding them down. That wouldn't make sense. They could have just left them bound. They were all loosed. But Paul says, no, we are all here. And you have to wonder, why were they all here? You know, the Bible tells us that Christians are to be the light of the world, salt of the earth. Christians have an influence. Christians have um, a calming influence, or they should, because of our passivity. Uh, and I don't mean we don't take a stand. I'm talking about being peaceful, loving people. We should be. And in times of crisis and chaos... If there's a person that is all calm, doesn't that have an effect on everyone else? It helps to calm everybody down. If somebody's calm, then he must know something we don't know and everything's going to be all right. And I just think of, well, I, I think of the story of Ellen White when she was on that train. Remember when the train wrecked? 
there's this violent shaking and commotion and noise and then she hears people crying out and screaming in pain and everything. And uh, in the end, what happened, her car was disconnected from the train and was sitting on the track safely while the train went on and derailed. She was not the only person in that car, like Paul and Silas were not the only ones in that prison. But everyone's life, lives, everyone's life was spared as God was protecting Ellen White, his, his special child, one of his own. And the same thing appears to be happening here. But there's more to it. The jailer then called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, and now he has his most peculiar question, because I would assume he would say something like, how can I ever repay you? How can I thank you? Uh, how can I show my gratitude, understanding that Paul and Silas and their influence had saved him from execution? But no, that's not what he says. I think, well, hadn't he? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you see that as a peculiar question? Had he not just been saved? He was about to execute himself. And because of Paul and Silas, he was saved, right? So why is he saying, what must I do to be saved? There's a story in the question. Do you see the story in the question? Sometimes you can get a whole story out of a question. The story that I see in the question is that the jailer had been one of those listening to the preaching of Paul and Silas those two weeks in Philippi. He must have been under great conviction, but he had not taken the step. And those of you who heard my story last night, you realize the Lord went through... Um, he went through some real effort to reach me. I was unreachable, remember? Unreachable, unchangeable. And the Lord stepped in through a divine intervention and reached me eventually through a recurring nightmare in which I lived to see Jesus coming, but I was lost. And so I look at this and I see, well, look at the lengths to which God will go to bring one of his children over the line. He was after that jailer. He knew that jailer was under conviction. He knew he was close. And in this case, it took a great earthquake to wake him up to reality, to eternal realities. And we said, what must I do to be saved? He knew exactly what he was asking. Don't you believe? He was now ready. He saw in Paul and Silas, Jesus, as, as Saul of Tarsus saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, the jailer saw Jesus through Saul, now Paul the Apostle. He realized that Jesus was a personal Savior and a Savior for himself, and he wanted to be saved. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And I'm going to stop right there in the story, and I think, I forgot her name already the one who read the scripture for stopping right there, because some people think, well, you we need to read the next verse and give the answer. No, I don't want to look at the answer right now. I want to focus on the question. What must I do to be saved? We're told that this is the all important question. And it has been clearly answered for us, but I want to look at the question. If it, this is the all-important question, I want to look at the question before looking at the answer. What must I do to be saved? Um, well, do I need to accept new doctrine? Do I need to go to church more faithfully? Do I need to do more, be involved in more charity? And then I could just ask, why are you here today anyway? Why are you here? And I just want you to think about that. What must I do to be saved? There are three stories in the New Testament where this basic question is asked and answered. And some people say, well, there's nothing you have to do. Jesus did it all. It was, you know, it was all done at the cross. No, because when this question was asked three times in the New Testament, in no case was it said 
the answer that there's nothing you have to do. Jesus did it all or Jesus will do it all. In every case, they were told what they had to do to be saved. See, that's not a legalistic answer. It's not a legalistic question. What must I do? But I think this is the all-important question that's, that you know everyone should be considering today. Um, when Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago, the people of the church, the Jewish church, were looking for salvation. But I, um, before I go there, I, I want to tell a little story. When I was growing up in the South, in Mississippi, we lived in a little country house next to a little country store, next to a little country church. And every once in a while, the little country church would have a little country revival. And as young children, I think I was 12 or 13 when, no, I was 15 when we moved away from there. But, but I remember as, as young, as, as children and young people, I was one of six siblings, but there were four of us living at home at that time. And we would be fascinated by these little country revivals. So we would go next to the church and, and we would kind of hang out sometimes to listen to what was going on inside. Now, we would not go inside during one of these little country revivals because what was inside? Hellfire, brimstone, I mean, the most gruesome depictions of hell and, you know, people being lost and tortured for all eternity. And, and uh, you know, on the outside of the church, it wasn't scary. We kind of found it amusing. We were little Seventh-day Adventist kids and we knew better. Uh, we shouldn't have found it to be funny, but we kind of did. And, um, but inside, it was sheer terror. There was no way we'd go in there. I remember after one of these events, there was one of the neighborhood kids, a young teenager, came to me and said, Ronnie, I was, I was saved last night. Have you been saved? You know what was my response? I said, from what? I mean, isn't that a logical question? That's why when I look at this question, what must I do to be saved? People talk about being saved all the time. But they don't spend any much time talking about the from what. And I thought, he's been saved from what? I don't see any difference in his behavior, his language. You know, he still smoke a little cigarette here and there. Saved from what? And so that's what I want to look at. Because when Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago, the church was looking for their Messiah. They were looking for their Savior. He was to come and save the Jewish people. From what? Well, they wanted salvation from the Romans. Foreign occupation, overtaxation, disease, poverty, uh, demon possession. Uh, you know, you read in the first few chapters of Desire of Ages about the demon possession, uh, the, the condition of the church at the time that Jesus came as Messiah. And there's a statement there that says the very organs of the people were being manipulated and controlled by demons. Now, this wasn't talking about the Romans, the Gentiles, or the Samaritans. This was talking about the church, in the church. And when you look at the efforts of Jesus in the church, uh, a number of cases where he cast out demons was with church members. They wanted salvation from all of these things. In other words, they wanted to be saved from the penalty and consequences of their own sin, apostasy, and rebellion. Because, see, God had promised, hadn't he, that they would ride on the high places of the earth, that he'd put none of these diseases upon them, that he had put upon the Egyptians. And here they were in this terrible condition. Had God failed the church? No, all God's promises and threatenings alike are conditional. They had failed to meet the conditions. Another book I want to write someday is just called If. Just If Ellipsis. Maybe at the bottom, bottom I'll put Ellipsis then. And it all, it'll all be about the conditional promises of God. Um, they were wanting deliverance from the consequences 
of their lives of sin. And I think it's that way many times in the world today of Christianity. Many Christians, unfortunately, they want to be saved from the consequences of their disobedience and their choices and their defiance and rebellion. And they just say, God loves me this way. Well, yes, he loves you this way, but does he want to leave you that way? No. You know, I think about, we've spent many trips. I've been to Romania 22 times doing mission work over there. And, and I've thought about these poor urchin children, street children, they're cast out of their homes as young as five and six years old. The parents can't afford to feed them and they put them out like animals. And these little children, primarily in, in Bucharest, um, they, they sleep all over public places during the day because they're safe when there are a lot of people around. Then at night they come alive like animals, nocturnal animals. And that's when they're scrounging through the trash and everything, looking for food and, and things. And, and some of these children, you see them and you can tell they're beautiful children, but they're dirty. They're like urchins, matted hair, uh, you know, shredded clothing, kind of like a fashion statement today. But anyway, you look at these children, you think, oh my, your heart just goes out to them. And you'd like to, I, I just imagine bringing them home, shaving their heads, delicing them, deworming them, soaking them in a tub for a week and burning their clothes and starting fresh with new clothes and good food and clean house and education. But I have to love them first. God loves us in our misery, but he loves us too much to leave us there. So just a little plug here. Uh, I urge people, don't say that God loves you the way you are. No, he loves you in spite of the way you are. If he loves you the way you are, he's not going to say be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Doesn't that make sense? God doesn't love us the way we are. He loves us where we are. He loves us in spite of our being enemies and, and um, sinners. And many Christians look at this and say, well, God loves me. So, well, God loves the lost. You know, we read in Revelation about a lake of fire. There's, there are going to be, oh, just billions of people that, that are destroyed for all eternity. Did God die? Did Jesus die for them? Yes, he did. did God, does God love them? Yes, he does. But they did not return that love um, and give their hearts to him. So I think about how many times we Christians, we worship God out of fear of punishment and hope of reward. See, no Christian here today wants to go to hell, right? I mean... I asked that question once and someone raised his hand real fast. I could tell he'd been sleeping. He didn't know what I was asking. <laughs> when I asked a question, he heard a question, okay. And I said, really? I, but really, I don't mind if you raise your hands if I ask if you want to go to heaven. You know, all Christians want to go to heaven, right? But the interesting thing is no pagan wants to go to hell either. And every pagan wants to go to their understanding of heaven, whatever that is. Is Christianity different from paganism? Do we worship God out of fear of punishment and hope of reward? Pagans will go to great lengths to appease their angry gods. They'll also go to great lengths to bribe the gods to get something that they don't deserve, but appease their gods so that they don't get what they do deserve. And there are, quote, Christian religions today that do the same thing. We read about one prominent one for sure, that they offer both. If you want to work your heaven, we have a plan, way to heaven. We have a plan for you. Um, if you want to earn your way to heaven or, um, yeah, you can go either way. You can, you can earn your way to heaven or you can earn, uh, earn your way out of hell, either way. Um, you can just go through the motions, but it's very pagan. So in my own experience of coming to the Lord, you know, from my testimony, I studied my way, to, way out of the, the gay uh, culture through uh, the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And I had been studying and uh, 
uh, I was reading the great controversy at this time, and, and I was in uh, a marketing uh, career uh, selling home improvements and home construction to people. And one of my clients turned out to be a Seventh-day Adventist couple. And we were the biggest project I ever sold was for their house. And so I was on the job around their house for weeks and they got to know me. And I don't know how people do this, but somehow they found out I used to be a Seventh-day Adventist and I'm on the job smoking and, and I'm gay and they find out all of that too. And somehow just being around them, they found out way too much about me. But they invited me to church. They wanted to get me back to going back to church. One Sabbath, I showed up at their church without letting them know. And as I was there in the church, the, the guest speaker was from uh, a seminary somewhere, a very well-known person. And he was introduced as having come into the Seventh-day Adventist faith through reading The Great Controversy. I thought, this is going to be good. I'm reading The Great Controversy. I'm, you know, this is exciting. So as I'm sitting there listening to the sermon, about halfway through the sermon, you know, when people start dozing and their minds start wandering, kind of like right now. <laughs> he slipped in a statement that to me was a kick in the pants. I was so shocked. He said, of course, we all know we will be sinning until Jesus comes. That theologian, and I'm not judging him or criticizing him. I'm speaking from what I heard as a gay person using drugs and alcohol and smoking and partying and all this stuff. He had no clue that someone like me was sitting in that church. Friends, we never know who's going to be coming in those double doors back there and sitting in the back pew somewhere. They could be starved spiritually and it may be their only opportunity to be fed. And if they're not fed, they may never come back. I never went back to that church. I heard that and I was so disappointed. Why? Because I had just been reading in the Great Controversy and page 489 says that Satan is constantly seeking to deceive the people of God with his fatal sophistry, at which point I went to a dictionary. Young people don't laugh, but I had to go to a dictionary. What in the world is sophistry? And I looked it up and a masterpiece of deception. Satan is constantly seeking to deceive who? You and me with his fatal masterpiece of deception. What do you think it is? That it is impossible to overcome sin. And that's what I heard in the Seventh-day Adventist pulpit on that Sabbath from a seminarian professor. I don't need to mention his name. That's not the point. I, that, this isn't about judgment and criticism. It's about our message. I turned away from that church and thought, I'm not going to find answers here. On the way out, the couple saw me and they invited me to lunch. I said, well, well, that's nice. I agreed to go with them to lunch. And I got in my car to follow them home. They took the scenic route. And we ended up, now this would never happen in Battle Creek, but we ended up at this big, beautiful restaurant overlooking downtown Los Angeles. See, that's why it never happened in Battle Creek. <laughs> um, I was very, I felt very awkward. Now, as a non-Christian and non-Adventist, and I was studying, I had no trouble eating out on Saturdays. But what I had a problem with was eating out on Sabbaths with Seventh-day Adventists after church. That really disturbed me. I felt really awkward. And while we're sitting there having the meal, and this couple, they were a lovely couple, and their motives were good. Again, I'm not judging or criticizing motives. I'm talking about understanding. The lady looked across the table and said, Ron, how's it going with those cigarettes? Is the Lord giving you victory over your smoking? And I looked at her and I said, well, no, he isn't. Very politely. But I was not so polite in my head. In my head, I responded, is the Lord giving you victory over breaking the Sabbath and bringing me with you? 
I was so offended. I thought, what is this? I just heard in their church that I can be sinning until Jesus comes. Why can't I sin until Jesus comes if they're going to take me sinning with them? Are there two kinds of sins? Then all these questions has flooded my head, all of which I knew the answers to, but they were thought questions. If I'm going to be sinning until Jesus comes, which sins are okay? It must be the Adventist way of sinning because my way of sinning is not going to cut it. <laughs> so, and if we're going to be sinning until Jesus comes, why are we spending huge amounts of money doing evangelism all over the world to make Sabbath keepers out of Sunday keepers? Do any of you know any godly Sunday keepers? I do. In our community, we have some of the most godly friendly people in the community that are Sunday-keeping Christians. They love the Lord. Why, why are we trying to help them stop sinning and start sinning like we do? It, it doesn't make sense, does it? The whole concept doesn't make sense. If, those, if that speaker had realized that a gay person, drinking, smoking, drugging gay person was sitting in his church, would he have said, Ron Woolsey, you can just continue sinning until Jesus comes. God loves you and he'll take you to heaven. That was the message I got. And to this day, it's the only thing I remember out of that entire sermon. I know I'm belaboring this point, but I think it's an important point. What are we to be saved from? The world is supposed to be saved from Sunday keeping. What are Adventists supposed to be saved from? Do we have issues that need salvation? as well? Yes, we do. So, I, um, had I not been studying for myself, I never would have come back to the Adventist church. And I read something similar in the Bible about, was it Nathaniel on the tree? Had he been listening to the rabbis, he would have never followed Jesus. He would have never found Jesus. He was doing his own study. And that's what I was doing as a gay person. I was studying. And I found the most beautiful answers. You heard some in my testimony last night. In Sabbath school, you heard more of what I learned studying on my own. But I found that in the plan of salvation, it's not about being saved from hell and saved to heaven. That's a pagan approach to, to worshiping our God. There's more to it. But it is true that it is all important as the all-sufficient Lamb of God. Jesus does promise to save his people uh, from the consequences of their sins. He took that upon himself. As, uh, as King of kings and Lord of lords, he does promise to take his children to heaven and save us from the very presence of Satan and sin and temptation for all eternity. Those are good points of doctrine, but they're not standalone. And they're inadequate. It's insufficient. It's not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Thirdly, and this is from our one unique doctrine in Seventh-day Adventists, as priest and high priest in the heavenly sanctuary today, Jesus promises to save his people from the very power of sin itself. See, if he saves us from the sin, then we stop earning the consequences. But as long as we're earning the consequences, are we really saved? No. And we have all of those symptoms. I think it's amazing that Jesus is so all-encompassing to us as Christians, offering to save us, yes, from the penalty of sin, yes, from the power, uh, the, the presence of sin, but also from the power of sin itself. Sin being the transgression of the law. I just have a few minutes here to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? And there, like I mentioned, there are three stories. I can go through two of them rather quickly. In Luke chapter 10, there was this lawyer that came to Jesus. He was really a theologian. Uh, he had his PhD in law, biblical law, the, you know, the laws of Moses and all of that. And I know that because of the context. And he came to Jesus and said, uh, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus did not say, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it at the cross. That's not what he said. He says, you're the theologian. <laughs> What's in the law? What does the law say? And he said, well, love God supremely and love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said this, correct. 
this do and thou shalt live. Love God supremely. Have you heard that this weekend so far? Love God supremely. Love your neighbors yourself. And you shall be saved. Well, that sounds pretty simple, really, until you really study it out. Then in Luke chapter 18, there was this young man. He was rich. He was young. He had authority. We call him, always call him the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and said, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gave him a different answer. He said, well, young man, you know the commandments. How many of us know the Ten Commandments? And Jesus, isn't he the one who wrote them on stone with his finger? Isn't he the one who spoke them from Sinai? And he said, young man, you know the commandments. And then Jesus started quoting them. And he got them all out of order. He started with number seven. Young man, do not commit adultery. Why do you think he started with number seven? Young man, rich in authority. I, thought, I call that a formula for spiritual disaster. Really. <laughs> what a challenge to be young and, and vibrant and rich and, and have influence. Um, but he started with number seven. You see, God looks upon the heart. And I think that's what Jesus was doing. He looked upon this young man's heart and did not commit adultery. Well, he didn't think he was committed adultery. And then he goes on to say, do not kill. Well, he never murdered anybody. But how do you think he felt about the Samaritans and the Gentiles and about someone bringing a Greek into the temple, perhaps? He probably had an issue with hatred and prejudice and bigotry. And Jesus is seeing this. And he goes on, do not steal. Well, how do you steal? He hadn't robbed anybody, but God says, well, maybe you've not robbed anybody else, but perhaps you've robbed me. How do we rob God? In tithes and offerings. And tithes, 10% offering. What percent offering? Uh, don't look at your tithe envelope. That's a suggestion. <laughs> That's a wish list. Um, anyway, uh, offerings. We're to be loving, cheerful, generous givers. And, but Jesus threw that in the mix. Do not steal. I read about how some of these uh, Pharisees and, and the Jews did their tithe. When they harvest their spices, they would actually count the leaves. They would sort the leaves and they'd take nine for self and one for the church. Nine for self and one for the church. You know, we pastors, sometimes we see tithe checks. You know, one comes across, you see a tithe check. And I've always been a little... Uh, Amused, and I, I don't want to offend anybody. It, I just find it a little amusing when I see a tithe check for $89.79. Or $79.89. And I think it'd be a lot easier to just say 80. But they're counting the leaves. But one thing I know, when I see a check like that, that person is determined not to cheat God and is paying a faithful tithe. I don't criticize that. I'm just saying that they're making sure they're not cheating God. That can be a good thing. But with this young man, what about his offerings? That widow with her two mites gave everything she had. What did the young man give? Jesus was probably pointing out, young man, you have a very selfish heart. You're not a cheerful giver. You're not a generous giver. You have riches. What are you doing? And he goes through the commandments, but the young man finally says, Lord, I, all this I've done from my youth up. He interrupted. He didn't want to hear anymore. And Jesus says to him, young man, there's one thing you lack. And then he named five things. I just find it so interesting. Can you tell I'm kind of a detailed person? Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, come back and follow me. That's five things, isn't it? If you break it down. He said, one thing you lack. But then we read that the young man turned away sorrowful. And Jesus loved this young man. But the young man turned away sorrowful. What was the one thing he lacked? He thought he was keeping the commandments. He said, all these have I kept from my youth up. But in essence, there were two commandments he was really breaking. Which ones were they? Love God supremely. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which the tempting lawyer had brought to this, 
uh, to view just earlier. He did not love God supremely, and he did not love his neighbor as himself. What was the one thing he lacked? Love. God is love. The young man did not have God in his heart. He did not have the love of God in his heart. Uh, the one thing that he lacked. Then we go back to the jailer of Philippi. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And I just find this so fascinating when I put these three answers all together. It's such, a, to me, a complete little package uh, of the plan of salvation. But Paul looked at this man and he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And every Christian says, Well, I believe. Well, don't all Christians believe? Well, they claim to believe. But we have to be careful because... In the book of James, chapter 219, it says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. Good for you. Right? The devils also believe and tremble. So, belief, you have to really understand what it means to believe. And Paul spells it out, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. These three words have much powerful meaning. Lord, throughout the Bible, at least in the King James Bible, replaces the word that's used for Jehovah. Throughout the Bible, Lord, Jehovah. Jehovah, the great I am, the self-existent one, the creator God, you know. Um, <clears throat> and Jesus, the word Jesus means deliverer. From what? Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, not in, but from their sins. And Christ, meaning Messiah, meaning anointed. Jesus was the promised Messiah up until the time of his baptism, in which he was launched into his ministry as the Messiah when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, you put all of that together in a sentence, and basically, what Paul is saying is that if you will believe in Jehovah, the self-existent eternal one, without beginning, without end, the great I am, anointed by the Holy Spirit to be your personal savior from sin, you shall be saved. Isn't that powerful? That's what those three words mean. And so the word is telling us very simply Love God and be saved. Love God supremely and your neighbors yourself. Well, then Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he, he lists the Ten Commandments. But we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, haven't we? We've all failed. And so we need a Savior. And so Paul says, well, if you'll believe in Jesus Christ, if you'll believe in the anointed one, you know, that was sent to save you from your sins, you shall be saved. You put that all together. Isn't that kind of a succinct uh, presentation of the gospel in a nutshell? It's broad and then a little more specific and then even more specific and still very simple. I say the gospel is, is, is simple enough that a child can understand. I also like to tongue in cheek say it takes a PhD to confuse it. I don't have a PhD so I can kind of say that, you know. I do have my PhD in experience. I claim that. That's an honorary degree <laughs> in experience. But no, seriously, the gospel is quite simple. Let me put it this way with, um, there's a very favorite quote of mine from Review and Herald, August 1, 1893. Through all ages and in all nations, those who believe that Jesus can and will save them personally from sin are the elect and chosen of God. 
We read about the elect in the Bible. Who are they? They believe in a personal savior from sin. And the quote goes on to say, his peculiar treasure. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I was in Poughkeepsie, New York, once looking for a place to park with my rig. I pull a trailer because of my marimba and stuff. And um, I found a place to park. It turned out to be right next to a jewelry store. A moment of inspiration. I grabbed my camera, went in and asked to see the manager. And he came out and I said, do you have one of those devices, those magnifying lens devices that you put on your glasses to look at peculiar treasures or, you know, a special gem? He said, sure. I said, I told him I was a pastor. I said, could I take a picture of you with one of those as an illustration? And he said, sure. And he said, you pick out the stone. Ah, I thought that was great. I love jewelry. I can't wait to be decorated however the Lord sees fit. You know, jewelry in the Bible with Lucifer, he's, every precious stone was his covering. It's kind of like when you see a general with all of these ribbons and medals and things that are put upon him by a higher authority and recognition of his service and his dedication. And that's the way I look at this. And I can't wait to see just how the Lord is going to honor me or, or whatever because of the service. If it is one stone, I'm happy. Because I used to have a ring, a gold ring with one diamond on it that was just a beautiful ring. Any other stone on it would have messed it up. I would be content. But I look at this, where the jeweler says, uh, you know, pick out the stone. And I picked out this big stone. He puts it in his hand and he looks at it through that lens. And then can you picture what I'm talking about? What does he see when he does that? Is he looking at all the other jewelry in the store? He's looking at one. Suppose this is a diamond in the rough. What does he see? He sees defects and he determines I can cut here and cut there. And the stone that starts out real big, it may end up being a lot smaller, but the smaller it gets, the more value there is because it is more and more reflecting what is in the heart of the jeweler. And at some point he eventually stops working on that special stone when it has reached the state of what? Everyone's afraid to say it. If I say it, I accuse of being a perfectionist. But if you say it, then we're in agreement, right? The Bible uses the word perfect and perfection many, many times. I am not a perfectionist in the sense that I claim perfection. I want to make that very clear. But I aim for perfection through Jesus Christ. He, my Savior, is a perfectionist. Would you agree? He's a perfectionist. When I read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. A creature is the result of the work of the creator. And if Jesus is my creator and I am a new creature, what state am I going to end up in? If he's a perfectionist. Now, I won't be judging myself. I'm simply putting myself in his hands and say, Lord, go, go for it. And that's what he wants. If we believe that he can and will save us personally from sin, we are the elect and chosen of God, his peculiar treasure. Then the quote goes on to say that we come out from the world and we separate ourselves from every unclean thought and unholy practice. But that's through his efforts in our life. I find that to be a very beautiful quote. I want to close now with just two texts of scripture. Revelation 21, verse 7. Oh, before I go there, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the commentary, beautiful paragraphs of commentary on that text where we read that the new birth consists in having new motives, new tastes, and new tendencies. I read that as a gay person. I thought, what? New tendencies? And I read on, and a genuine conversion changes both hereditary and cultivated tendencies to wrong. So people that claim hereditary, I was born this way. Well, I'm sorry, but Jesus has a wonderful invitation for you. Be born again. That's simple. Everyone coming to Christ 
accepts the invitation to be born again. And when we come to Christ and we're born again, don't we all go through a process of conversion? Do you know that's a dirty word today? If we use the word conversion in the same context of LGBTQ, we're accused of conversion therapy, electric shock and psych, all this kind of stuff. No, we're talking about conversion of the heart. Everyone coming to Christ must have a conversion, a change of heart. And that passage says that a, the, uh, a genuine conversion change changes both hereditary and cultivated tendencies. Friends, none of us have an excuse. We have no excuse to remain in a fallen, sinful condition. But we need to trust that God will do the work he set out to do. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, first and the last. He's not a quitter, are you? He's not a quitter. We can trust him. Now, Revelation 21, verse 7, these last two texts of Scripture. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, meaning my child. My, um, he will inherit, you know, as a child of God, we inherit from our Father. And then couple that with John chapter 1. You know, in John chapter 1, Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. Remember that? But verse 12 says, but as many as did receive him, you know, there were those Jews who did receive him as Messiah. But as many as did receive him, to them gave he power, that's grace, to become the sons of God. So we have to be transformed. It takes power, God's grace, to transform us into his image so that we are sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. And I read that and I thought, wow. To believe on his name. And Paul says believe on the, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on his name. Jehovah. The great I am. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. The creator. The recreator. Anointed by the Holy Spirit. To be your personal savior from sin. Believe on his name. God will give you power. To become the sons and daughters of God. If you believe in his power to do so. So I thank God today, friends, that through his grace, his divine strength, not through our own strength, but through his strength, you and I can become, it says, word says become sons and daughters of God. We can be restored to what he created us to be in the first place. God is love.